Radio. Theology of the Body. Looking at our experiences. A talk by Anna Crone at the Immaculata Mission School 2015. Held at the Sacred Heart Retreat Centre in Croydon, Melbourne. I wanted to unpack for you, just introduce for you, and I know some of you know a little bit about theology of the body. Tell me what you know. Tell me what you've done. Someone. Listen to some tapes. Which ones? Christopher West? Yeah? Jason Everett. Oh, okay. So tell me who's done a class on it or anything? Okay. That's good. So you're pretty knowledgeable. That's good. But that's why I thought I'd give you a bit of a background story because it's worth connecting the history of this to our current culture. It's what I call cultural literacy, to be able to understand where our cultures come from, what's influenced our culture and our beliefs. Okay. Well, the series of audiences that John Paul spoke, speak at, looks at it, let's look at the, what he covers in Theology of the Body. First of all, he looks at, um, he looks at the beginning. And remember I said we go back to the beginning he goes back to, which is the beginning? The book of Genesis. I told you it's like a, uh, Dr. Adam Cooper calls theology of the body a giant Bible study. So he goes back to the very beginning of the Bible, not just because he thinks it's a good idea, like in the sound of music, you know, let's go back to the very beginning, it's a very good place to start, um, sung by Julie Andrews, um, and not by me. Um, so if, if um, we go back to the beginning... He says, not just because I think it's a good idea, because Jesus himself goes back to creation. In uh, Matthew's Gospel and in St. Mark, he has an encounter with the religious authorities of his time who debate with him about marriage. We're still having arguments about marriage 2,000 years later, aren't we? What is marriage? Who should be married? What does it it mean to be married? Should, Should people stay married? What's the kind charitable thing to do? What's the compassionate? All of that argument was happening in Jesus' time. Then he, John Paul goes to a next series of talks about how it is for us now. Um, he calls this being historical, the historical man and woman, how we experience our lives, our hearts and our minds. And he says our sexuality can be redeemed in our hearts through grace. And he looks here at Jesus talking to us in the Sermon on the Mount, telling us what the Beatitudes are. So connected to theology of the body is, a, is, is transforming our hearts. The third little bit he looks at is the future, the age to come. And here we talked a little bit about the resurrection of the body. Do you remember we talked about the fact that our bodies are made for glory? They're made to be in God, in heaven, beautiful, full of light, just as Jesus' body was glorified after his resurrection. And again, John Paul II goes back to Jesus' words. So if you like, John Paul says the word about theology of the body is the word, Jesus Christ, found in the word that is the Bible. So can you see how he's building, like those little Russian dolls, he's stacking up the idea of the word. He also um, talks a little bit about other things as well. He talks about marriage. He talks about um, the church's teaching about contraception, about fertility. 
um, partly because he can see that many people just don't get, don't understand what the church is saying about the human person. Today we're going to concentrate just on these beginning stories that he tells. Jesus points to, of course, when he's debating with um, the Pharisees who say, you should be able to put your wife away. In other words, divorce your wife. A man should be able to divorce his wife. And Jesus says, that wasn't how God made the love between man and woman. It's not what he intended. It's only because our hearts are hard that we think that our hearts shut down, that our hearts are like stone, that people begin to think this. Either they don't understand love in the beginning or they think that love is something else. We talked about false loves. So he said one way to understand how we really should love is to go back and look at the very beginning. Before sin came into the world, he calls this original humanity, Adam and Eve. And he says there are three experiences that Adam and Eve show us that we share in our own hearts. Solitude, unity and nakedness. We spoke a bit about that. It's interesting, in the art of Adam and Eve, you usually see them with those rather fetching little fig leaves that they're wearing. Not before that, but we'll talk about that later. And then we said the other things he looks at are marriage. He looks at St. Paul. He looks at the idea of the sacrament of marriage, the importance of the language of the body. He talks about the Song of Songs, which talks a lot about erotic love and the law of life and the ethics of life of a couple. So you can see it would be far too much for us to cover that today. There's two beginnings. There's the story of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And have you ever thought about that? There's two beginnings in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? There's the beginning in chapter 1, which tells us about man and woman in the whole structure of creation. And there are two very, very important ideas that are introduced to us about who we are in a body. And one is that we are made in the image and likeness of God. You've probably heard that a million times. Have you really thought about what that means? How are we like God of all creation? Why are we like God? What do you think? Sorry? He made us. But he, he, the Bible reveals that God especially made human beings in his image and likeness. What does that mean? Beautiful. Yes, we have a capacity to love in the way that God loves, unconditionally, purely, generously. Now, I don't know about you, but you might have some very loving animals, cat, dog, whatever your animal is, and they are truly beautiful creatures. God made them too. But they don't have the capacity to love in the way that we do. And sadly, they also don't have the capacity to sin in the way that we do. Have you ever thought about that? You don't arrest your dog. We say, bad dog, but we don't seriously tell our dogs to go to confession, do we? <laughs> because we say that human beings have a moral capacity. They have a freedom to choose what is right and wrong. Animals don't have quite that freedom. They can be trained... They can be incredibly intelligent and we have a special vocation as human beings to look after them, to not be cruel to them. They are precious indeed. 
But one of the mistakes that, come, that came about with the Kinsey view of the human person is that many people today think they are just animals, which is puzzling. Because if they were just animals, they would get on and live their life without the kind of confusion that human beings have. So the very fact that they're confused is a sign that they're not an animal. Animals don't have moral dilemmas. Animals don't paint the Sistine Chapel. Animals don't, they're great creatures. And people like St. Francis here behind me had a great love for, he saw Solomon's brothers and sisters, but different. So the first thing we know is from Genesis 1 is that we're made in the image of likeness of God. We're intelligent, we can freely choose, we can choose the good, we can choose the bad, unfortunately, and also that we can love. Now, often people said that's because God is pure spirit, we are spiritual too. That's true. But John Paul reminds us that God also made his image and likeness to be embodied. So he made Adam and Eve with bodies. He didn't make them as angels. We're not angels. Angels have no bodies. They manifest themselves in history, but they don't have bodies. They're pure spirits. And I was reading something about the Jewish liturgy, and the Jewish liturgy had a, has a real sense of the angels being around us, being, you know, helping us to see God's presence in the world. So when Jewish people pray during the day, they talk about the angels beautifully. It's just a really interesting thing. But we are, strangely enough, in the image and likeness of God in a way that the angels are not. In other words, we have bodies. We also know that uh, Genesis 1 teaches us very simply that God made humanity, man and woman, he made them. In other words, men and women are morally, spiritually equal in the beginning. We know that through history that became a struggle. And we know today there's confusion about, well, what's the dig- does it matter? Does it matter whether you're a man or a woman? Is it just like being Ken and, Ken and Barbie? Ken and Barbie are both made of plastic and they are not bigger on the inside than they are on the outside. Once you get on the inside, there's nothing there. I don't know if you had a brother who cut your dolls in half. I did. <coughs> And inside was nothing. (laughs) That's unlike you because you have that invisible ink that we call the spiritual inside you too, that invisible ink of God, that invisible ink that holds your body together, your soul. But John Paul II says for our purposes today, Genesis 2 is even more important for us to understand. Because he says it goes into the depth of the human person. Do you remember Genesis 2? It's concerned with man as a wondering, thinking, judging, naming, feeling subject. Now I think one of the reasons John Paul II really likes chapter 2 is because it's like a play. There's action. It's an action movie, isn't it? Genesis 2 is an action movie. Genesis 1 is like a Richard Attenborough scientific documentary. It's about the cosmos unfolding and it's very beautiful. It's like a hymn. But this is about, this has got a human interest. And John Paul says, in this we see human person as an acting person. That's the name of one of his books, the acting person. And he says, 
we see inside the feelings of Adam and Eve, what we call the subjective. We see inside their hearts. And we also see God also in that way. God is like a gardener walking in his garden. This story is called the Yahwist story. In other words, it's believed to be a really ancient account of creation, very old, much older than the priestly account, which is Genesis 1, which is like a hymn. Very interesting. If you ever want to study biblical studies, this area is incredibly interesting. It also tells us about the fall from grace, how it is that human beings fell from grace. Now let's look at original experiences. What does John Paul II mean? He says... We have in our hearts, remember we talked about those aspirations, what do we hope for? Those experiences are not distant in time. They are the root of every human experience. Remember we noticed that everyone wants to find true love? Everybody wants true relationships. In other words, they're at the base of a lot of our experiences. He says it's true even if in the evolution of ordinary human existence, not much attention is paid to these. We live in a very busy culture, don't we? We're plugged into iPhones, plugged into iPods, plugged into almost everything. We don't get time to be what I would call contemplative. We don't have time to go into the depth. I think a lot of people are aware of that now. I see a lot of young people getting up early on a Sunday morning not to go to Mass but to go to yoga partly because they're hungering for depth. They're hungering for integration. Partly because they're hungering after something deeper. And I think that's a sign that this is true. What John Paul II is saying is true. And then he says, but why do we care about the body? And we've talked a little bit about why the body is important and how the church in its teaching in its struggle with the world, in some of the heresies, biological reductionism is something we've spoken about, that we are just atoms, there's no meaning in the world, just, just atoms, we're just complicated Lego sets, a little bit bigger than mitochondria, but not much. Um, we also know that we are struggling with our bodies right now too. We were just talking in the break of how confusing it is, how confusing sexual identity is in this culture. Sexual identity is complex because love is complex. Because we live in a broken world, sometimes we are confused, not because we've done anything wrong, but because the messages we hear are so very confusing. So isn't it, it's not surprising that some of us, including me, everyone, struggles with what it means to be a man or a woman what it means to be virtuous or not, what it means to love truly or not, what it means to find a true relationship or not. No wonder it's confusing. There are so many different heresies out there, incomplete truths, and so many people telling us that if we say anything different, we are what? What do people accuse Christians of being? Bigoted, intolerant, hate-filled, judgmental. In fact, the opposite is true. The Christian message is about loving our brother and sister truly, 
wanting them to have, say, you deserve the truth as much as me. I'm not going to bash you over the head with it. I want, to, I want you to come with me and see it. So we have this struggle every single day in the headlines, in our TV series, on the news. No wonder we have confusion. We also know that people misunderstand the role of the church incredibly at the moment. And it's been confused because the church herself has failed to live the message. We've failed in many deep ways. We've also had saints. We've had people whose sexuality has been very disturbed. We have to own that. And that has confused and made the church's mission so, so much harder. So theology of the body is good news. Why? Let's go to the beginning. John Paul says we have to go through the door of the body beyond, beyond laws and policies that the goodness of our hearts and our bodies is what God wanted for us. And also that our bodies show us something about the Lord Jesus Christ. Also that we helps us in grace to live our lives. So theology of the body is about getting into the depth of the human person and understanding how the message of Jesus Christ speaks through that experience. Let's go into the original experience. When God is walking in his garden in Genesis 1, he creates a man whose name is Adam. Now, in Hebrew, that word means mud man. It's a very gorgeous word. It means, you can imagine God putting his fingers into wet clay and going, and he, he gets this man and he kind of forms him like a little Gumby man. And he, you know, like an Ardman character, you know, um, sort of like plasticine. So it's very, very tangible. The word means in Hebrew, God got his hands dirty really intimately created us like an artist. Very different from Genesis 1 where God speaks and things happen, which is also true about God. But here the story is trying to capture how God loved this creature in a special way and he moulded it out of mud of the earth. In other words, we're not angels. We're made out of the stuff of the world. The great Christian author C.S. Lewis says, we are made of stardust and the breath of God. Beautiful image. Stardust and the breath of God. So in other words, God created a being who is personal, has an inside, has a, has a sense of the awareness of who they are. Without that deep meaning of man's original solitude, one cannot understand and correctly interpret the whole person. So earth man, made of the earth and God's breath, And one of the first things Adam does is he has to find his identity in the garden. Adam became aware of his distinctiveness and his uniqueness through his body. Can you imagine the very first man being moulded out of the earth, being breathed into life? What would he see around him? There's lots of little animals, there's trees. What do you think he's starting to think about things? He's standing up for one thing. No other creature quite stands erect like man. He looks different, doesn't he? He's got no hair on him. He's got no fur. 
Maybe he's a bit hairy, but not that hairy. <laughs> so Adam already is starting to become aware that he is different. And John Paul takes us through that journey. In other words, when we develop into our bodies, we realise we are different. How many of you had that experience when you went through puberty? Suddenly your body started doing weird things and you thought, nobody understands me. <laughs> Nobody's ever experienced this in the whole history of the universe. In a way, you're having a mini Adam experience. In other words, I'm unique, I'm different. And for Adam, this was not a depressing experience. It was a beautiful experience. He understood himself to be unique and he had a unique body as well. You notice when God created Adam, he didn't just leave him to himself, he gave him a job. And that tells us that God has a vocation for each and every one of us. We've got to make and do in this life. Adam was told, what, was he, what were his jobs? Do you remember what Adam, Adam was called to do? This is before Eve is around. What was he asked to do? Name the animals. That's a beautiful job. It probably took him longer than a day, but it would be a big job. In other words, there's something different about man to the other creatures. The other creatures don't name us. We name them. And what the Jewish writer is trying to tell us there is that in some ways God help, lets us share in his creative role. In other words, God trusts us so much. He makes us co-creators. We are not masters of the universe, but we are stewards of creation. And in our life, we are given work. Work is good. Work is a blessing. So is rest, because God rests as well, doesn't he, in creation. But God, Adam is given a body, an identity, and he's given a task. Secondly, this is the way John Paul, the structure of his body is such that it permits him to be the author of genuinely human activity. He's given the freedom and the power of naming the animals, and he's also told about the tree of good and evil, that he's not to do some things. In other words, he's been given moral power. All in that first few lines of Genesis. And he's seeing that he is a mystery. And we share that experience as well. Before we can communicate ourselves, we must know who we are. We need to have language, moral sense, and consciousness. Now, we don't get that message, do we, at school about our sexual identities. We're told, do it whenever you feel like it. What we learn from Genesis 1 very, is that we need to be comfortable in ourselves with God. Adam is made face-to-face -face with God in an intimate relationship. God blows his breath into him. His first responsibility is to live his vocation, to accept the gift of himself, to be comfortable with himself, to be mature, to be conscious and have a moral sense. Isn't this interesting? And what I think that's telling us is a lot about what we need before we think about our vocations, before we go into serious relationships. We've got to be friends to ourselves and friends with God. And you know that's our primary relationship. Whatever happens in the rest of our life, our original solitude face-to-face -face with God is our primary vocation. 
God loves us so much, we have a face-to-face relationship with him. And many people who find their vocations to love God in a way that's nuptial, that is to give themselves in a sacrificial way to God, have to come to this encounter first, to find God intimately with themselves. I don't know about you, but there's times when in my life when I've been very uncomfortable being with myself. It's much easier to go and drown yourself in other people's company, isn't it? Or to be distracted. But Adam was told to go through this journey first. And I think this is often neglected. Remember Jesus says, go into your room, go into your quiet, and there to pray to your father. Many young people never get to that experience, that original experience, because either they've had a broken relationship with their own fathers or a broken image of themselves in their heads or they've had something that has made them distrust original solitude so that they either hate their bodies or they distrust their hearts. This is a part of theology of the body I think we could spend all day on and it's a very important um, part. But it shows us another thing, that I have a responsibility. I'm called to freedom and love. I'm called to discover my, my interior life. And I'm called to have self-mastery. Self-mastery means choosing things freely with full knowledge and full awareness. How many people have sexual relationships that are unfree? that are abusive, that are less than the truth because they've never been told the great news about self-mastery. They're told sex is a need. You've just got to go out and get it wherever you find it. And you know the trouble with that? You become a slave of it rather than mastering it. Try and think of a a kung fu master. A kung fu master trains for years (laughs) to be master of his movements, doesn't he? That's what we are encouraged to be as Christians. We're encouraged to go back to... Adam was very cool. He was able to move through the garden with ease, with freedom. Now, isn't that interesting? He had this relationship with God, which was pure and good and true, and a relationship with himself that was masterful. He grew up. Sadly for us, in our culture, kids are encouraged to to go into sexual encounters with each other or with older people, before they've even found this maturity. That's why I think our culture is so horrified by sexual abuse. But in the very name of trying to avoid sexual abuse, they're committing sexual abuse. Exposing kids to forcing children into unwanted sexual experience is abuse. Let's call it what it is. And sadly, although the church has been has witnessed people who have abused children. Our culture's doing it right now. I say to people, yeah, you're right, the church has done some really bad things, but where is your son right now? What's he watching? What's happening to him? Who's bullying him? Who's sexting him over the telephone? That's abuse too. So John Paul says, let's get back to this beginning. This very first experience is very important. And this face-to-face relationship with God and ourselves is our beginning and our end. This is how we learn to love, by loving ourselves in God. 
learning that God loves us. And this is the primary relationship. We all, I'm married. Do you think I give up God because I'm married? If I don't go back to a face-to-face relationship with God, I'm not going to be much of, a, in a, much of a person in a relationship. I'll lose my way. And that's why in Christian marriage, couples are encouraged to bring their marriage face-to-face with God. You know, what often happens in our culture, where, which doesn't accept this, is that people become slaves of one another. I know so many young women who come to me who are in relationships of slavery. And it's got worse. Even though we say we live in a culture that's feminist and you know, looks after women's interests, it's got worse. The same is true for boys and young men. So we now have um, that God creates the sexual differences. So God, Adam now, God now looks at this mature Adam who's doing his job, who's living morally, and says, okay, okay, now it's not good that he is alone. And he creates a gift called Eve, who is made for Adam as a helpmate akin to him. In other words, not a slave, not a housekeeper, not a little sister, but someone who is a companion with him. In the Genesis story, Eve is made out of the rib of Adam. That means someone close to his heart, deepest of his heart equal in moral dignity to him. And the word that Adam uses is that this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. A sister companion. She's she's my kin. She's my sister in some ways, equal to me. But there's something very special about the fact that God created not another bloke for Adam, isn't it? Now, male friendships and the love between two men and two women as friendship, is a beautiful kind of love. But for some reason, God created, in Genesis, we see this special relationship between two different kinds of human beings. One is a man and one is a woman. And that is why Christians are still saying, this is marriage. There are lots of great relationships that men have with each man. Men go out on adventures together. They have pals They have father and son relationships. These are beautiful things. But marriage is about this original creation. Not because we made it that way, but because that's how it seems to have been in the beginning. This is God's will for us, that there is this special complementary relationship. Men and women are very different and sometimes puzzlingly different to each other, and yet they are equal. So why do you think God made Eve and not another Adam, Adam 2, Adam Mark 2? Why did, he do, why did God do that? Yes, he, he, he needs us to see, to cross that bridge to someone who is a different but original unity as well. That's a very beautiful answer. So someone who is different to us, made differently in the body, we have to cross the bridge to meet a man or a woman, don't we? a little bit more of a challenge. 
So there's something that God willed about us going out of ourselves into someone who is like us but different in a very, in a very bodily way. We have lots of men and women who are different to each other. But men and women, are, each of us are men and women. We're not, no matter how confusing we might find it, we are not nothing. We're not neutered. We're not nothing. There's not like gingerbread man who's just no shape and we put the bits on afterwards. We are men and women down to our chromosomes. And God has written that into us and there's a reason for that. And it's a mystery sometimes too, but I think that's a great answer. There's also another very practical reason why God made this the, the, the key relationship. Why is that? So they could be more human beings. It's a very practical reason, isn't it? Um, that there could be this special relationship of love so that human beings arise out of the love of two people. Now we know we live in a time of sin and lots of babies are conceived in less than perfect circumstances. But every person has a mother or a father, even although there's so many violations of human dignity in the IVF clinic, even they, even IVF babies have a mother or a father. So God wanted that. He wanted us to be related by flesh to somebody else. And the only way he could, the, the way he wanted that happening was between the special love of these two different types of human beings who are bone of bone and flesh of flesh. So this first experience then is of a desire to be united with this different kind of being. Someone who's equal to me but different. And God said, this is very good. This love is very, very good. This is blessed. So Jesus says when he speaks to the Pharisees, that's why God made this relationship. It's not just any old relationship. It's a very special part of God's creation. Does that mean everyone has to get married? No. No. Not actually married, but everyone loves as a man or a woman, and that's part of their deep reality. Not everyone has to... In fact, many people, the great saints in the world, are married to God in a more direct way. But they still have to travel through this original unity. They still have to desire to give themselves. They still have to find this true love. A person who chooses to live a life of a consecrated person is not saying, I'm choosing a life without love. They're choosing a life that's love in the way Jesus loved the world. Prior to Jesus coming into the world, the Jewish people really didn't understand that kind of vocation. The last experience that Jesus, that, um, J- Jesus points out that, that John Paul wants us to understand is original nakedness. And this is where the body is on view as a sign. So Adam and Eve... Eve is created out of Adam's rib. And what happens? He wakes up. He doesn't say, oh, there's somebody else in the garden. Do you remember his words? He says, here at last. In other words, he feels like he's come home. In fact, he has come home and he's making a home. This vocation to create a home or create a family is the beautiful vocation that is the, is the peak 
celebration of this love of Adam, of original unity. We desire to be with others, but particularly we desire that different person to love us in this full bodily way. And it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. So beautiful that the church celebrates it as a sacrament of God's presence in the world. We don't just think it's a piece of paper. We think it's two people bonding their lives and their bodies together in a way Adam and Eve did. The difficulty is is that we live in an age where sin affects that kind of love. So we've got it every single day of our lives, even though we are living in a sacrament, try to live the purity of this love. Struggle with it and try and journey through it. And part of that vocation, now that Jesus has shown us his own nuptial love, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. So he says, everyone is to be betrothed. We all need to give ourselves in total self-sacrificing love to death. That's that's what we say when we get married. Anyone here married? Anyone taken those vows? They're pretty scary vows, aren't they? Pretty full on. In other words, not I'm going to love you till you get wrinkles. Not I'm going to love you until you stop, you start snoring in front of the TV. I'm going to love you and be with you and support you till the end of our lives together. And even the Jewish people at the time of Jesus found that a hard saying. It's hard, but it's beautiful. Have you ever seen an old couple who've been married for 60 years? Isn't it amazing? Especially if they've been living a beautiful, loving marriage, they start to look a little bit like each other and they start to guess each other's words. And even if they've, you know, they're very frail physically, there's something so beautiful and hope-giving about an old couple that you see like that. They're a real model to us. And they talk about their love in such a fantastic way that they're a great model to us, people who are not that, in that age group. So 60 years they talk about their love, their deepened love, the fact that they love their wife more than they did on their wedding day is just such an amazing thing. So remember those hopes we had of true love. Sometimes those old, faithful, married people are fulfilment of those hopes. But that sort of love is a risk-taking, isn't it? Because it means you're going to be hurt. Even if nothing else hurts you, you're going to lose, one of, you're going to lose your, mar- your spouse to death. And that's something that is so hard to cope with, so hard to understand. So loving that deeply means really putting your life on the cross in a good way because it's a beautiful thing. It's one of the greatest things we do. This type of self-giving love to the end is also the same vocation for someone who becomes a priest and somebody who becomes a sister. They give their bodily love, they lay their bodies on the line in the same way that a married couple do, except in a different mode, different tone. So a couple who get married say, I give you my body, I give you my heart, I give you my mind, but I still remain myself. A married couple don't become slaves to each other. They don't become the the same as each other. And they say, we open our lives to total, mutual, fruitful love. What does that mean, do you think? What's fruitful love? 
What do most married couples hope when they marry? To have children. That they hope to have children. Again, you can't do that without two bodies. No matter how much... (laughs) You do need two bodies to have a child. Even again, even though we have IVF, um, IVF still requires human bodies. But the bodies are given in a special way in Christian marriage. In other words, we... Everyone acknowledges that we don't make our own children. God intervenes and gives this child its human personhood. So we're in total relationship with God the whole way through a Christian marriage. What if you're a married person like me who has no children? I don't have children. My husband and I don't have physical children. But we have found that in a Christian marriage you're still open to life. And... That is a very special thing as well because you then find people can't become your children. Like a lot of my friends have teenage kids who come and talk to us. So if you're open to life, amazing things happen. Things, again, God writing with his invisible ink. And that's a real vocation. And we do it better because we're together than if we're on our own. What about somebody called to priesthood? Do they have a call to original unity? Yes. They're still called to be truly men, to be sexually integrated, to be loving, to be gentle, to be tender, and to do that in a way that a Christian husband would be, except his bride is the church. His bride are the people he serves. He's got to be very integrated, though, to be able to live that life in a healthy way. And that's what formation and prayer, and some priests become priests in religious orders so that they can do that in a full way. Are they unloving? No, they're sometimes the most deeply loving. John Paul II is an example of that. What about the third thing? Somebody who never finds the right person or somebody whose beloved dies or someone who struggles with sexual confusion or mental health issues. Are they called to this theology of the body as well? What do you think? Yes. They're called to self-mastery. They're called to be deeply loving. They're called to live their lives out of love and service. And we as the church have a special vocation to try and help them see how important their love is. We live in a time of a lot of sexual confusion, but there's been times like that in the church's history before. During the Black Death in the Middle Ages, lots of men died, and often there were women left with no potential husbands. And many of those great saints of that era, like St Catherine of Siena, saw that they had to love God directly. They still had to be very embodied people. She, She became anorexic for a while because she thought that God was calling her to live on her own as a hermit, and she became quite confused about her eating. She stopped eating. God said, no, I'm calling you to serve the church. Come out of your hiding. And then she had this beautiful revelation of God giving her his heart. So people who don't marry that have this special call have a special way of showing us the heart of Jesus. And Catherine powerfully did that. She loved in a nuptial way. She loved 
as a bride. She loved, she said, I've exchanged my heart with Jesus Christ. In some way she loved more deeply than anyone who's in a, in a marriage relationship. So we are still called to this unity in different ways. Some of us are called to be married. Some of us are called to be dedicated single people. Some of us are called to be consecrated people. Most of us have to make a decision. And it's quite tough to do that. So we need the church, church of sacraments and the graces to do that. The last experience that John Paul II speaks about is nudity, nakedness. Adam and Eve are made with no clothes on. I don't know whether you know that, but there's no fashion labels in Eden. Uh, we have clothes now for two for special reasons. Two reasons. <clears throat> One, after Adam and Eve fell away from their covenant with God, they immediately saw that they'd created a problem. The unity that they felt, the peace they felt in their own bodies no longer was there. Why not? What happened? What do you think was going on? Were they just hung up? They felt shame. And John Paul says, look, our culture says, oh, you shouldn't be ashamed of your body. Flaunt it. John Paul says it's much more complicated than that. Because our bodies are so much who we really are, we now know that in a world of sin, where people might use us or a world of brokenness, modesty, protecting our bodies, is a sign that we really respect our bodies because our bodies have a sexual meaning and we have that meaning to give to another not for people to take from us. That's why most people would say that rape is wrong. Sexuality is about gift. If you take it from somebody, you can't say, give me that present. That's not gift. It's called plunder or theft. And we know that anyone who has been sexually abused feels so broken because their sexual meaning has been pulled away from them. Now, a lot of healing is needed in that person's life, but they can recover the sense of their preciousness. But even most secular people recognise how wrong rape is for that reason, even if they're not quite clear about how it all works. So nakedness now, Adam and Eve had no problem with nakedness. There was no, there was no brokenness in their hearts. Now there is. There's brokenness in our hearts and our minds. And so we now protect our bodies. We don't start out life like that. We're born very naked. Little kids jump out of the bath and run down the hall because they have no sense of their sexual selves, do they? I remember my little nephew, who was about six, was running around. He'd taken all his clothes off. He was jumping in a wading pool. And, he, um, and we live, my mother lives near a school. And the little girls came out to play. And he suddenly went, oh! and ran away and got a towel. I think he suddenly was aware that these were girls he didn't know and there was something about his body he should protect. I'm very interesting at a very young age. He wasn't being hung up. He was aware that this was part of his identity and it was precious. John Paul in Theology of the Body writes a lot about the body in this way. He writes very beautifully about art and he says that art... You know, painting nudes is not wrong. If you paint a naked person in a way that 
protects the sexual meaning of their body, in other words, it portrays it in a way that's not like pornography, then nakedness can be a beautiful thing in art. He's not anti... Obviously, he's not. He's got a Sistine Chapel with hundreds of naked people floating all over the ceiling. (laughs) So nakedness, it comes into our lives in a way that we protect. If any of you are training as nurses or doctors or paramedics, you know one of the most important ethical teachings you have is to protect the modesty of others, don't you? You'll be on your ear if you leave a patient naked in a trolley in a hall. I promise you won't, you won't last in your job very long. Because the, the identity of the person and their sexual bo- their, their bodies are precious. They need, so that's what modesty is. That's what John Paul says. Shame is what came into the world, not just because we were bad, but because we realised we'd lost something precious. And so when a couple marry, part of the preciousness of uncovering each other's nakedness is about having the love all there before the nakedness. I had an interesting discussion with a young man who said to me, what do you think about nudists? I always get these questions. And I said, well, nudists are trying to return to Eden when they're not really there. And I've noticed with nudists they have to go to a special beach and they look, they go, I'm going to show my body and my body's going to be free. Um... But there's something a little bit contrived about that. I don't mean it's the same as, you know, young boys used to all jump into the water hole without clothes. But they didn't fear that their, their sexual identity was going to be hurt. There's something really true in uh, holding on to this notion of modesty. And modesty is not just taking all your clothes off. It's the way you wear clothes. It's the way you stand. It's the way you think about yourself. We could have a whole afternoon talking about that topic. It doesn't mean the body is evil. It means the body is great. It, it means that our bodies are precious. It means that our bodies should be loved. So these three experiences then are things that Adam and Eve experienced that we ourselves can understand from the inside. But we know that the history doesn't end there and we begin a broken history. And if you notice what happens, Adam goes back on his vocation. Adam is told not to eat of the tree of knowledge, not to say, I am God. He's told, what happens is he says, what happens? The serpent comes in and says, God's lying to you. The message is a fake one. God really wants you not to eat the tree of good and evil so he, that you will not know happiness. Your eyes will be opened And they were opened, weren't they? Adam and Eve's eyes were opened and they suddenly realised they were open. Although they had open eyes, their hearts had closed. So they were no longer seeing with pure sight. They immediately realised that they were vulnerable and they covered themselves because I knew I was naked. They also knew that they could no longer live in the perfect world and that from now on, sexuality and their relationship with each other was going to be a challenge. John Paul says that what happened is that Adam and Eve became subject to different temptations. Adam had the temptation and therefore all men had the temptation to dominate 
dominate women, to dominate children, <clears throat> to dominate, to use power in an unfortunate way. But Eve also had her temptations, and her temptation was to be possessive, to desire her husband, to keep clinging on to him. So if you like, men and women have a different way of being insecure, of committing sin. Sometimes men use it by violence or domination, and women use it by possessiveness. Possessive mothers who never let their boys grow up. Possessive mothers who never let anyone be themselves. Women can be very scary when they give in to that temptation and very destructive. So it started to happen in history. And then we have, of course, those temptations turning into actual sins. Adam and Eve's children. One murders the other. So then you have the rest of Genesis, which is a very broken story of brokenness. God never giving up. God trying to keep, keep accompanying the human person. So John Paul then jumps from that part of the story into healing the human heart, where he goes straight into the Beatitudes. It says, now what Jesus has come to do is to bring back, to help us understand the beauty of the beginning by healing our hearts. So the Beatitudes is a story of how we live well and how we live by healing our hearts so we can love aright, that we can love with fair love. And another part of the chapter starts. So John Paul's story goes on from there and he unpacks many other beautiful things which I must say you could spend your life studying. But the beginning, I think, is often a really good key to understanding how theology of the body works. If anybody's interested to find out more um, about this theology of the body, I've brought some brochures from the John Paul II Institute. If you want, to, if any of you would like to do a diploma degree study or come in and audit a course or whatever, our whole institute is working around bringing this theology of the body, this nuptial mystery theology, into our world for social workers, for psychologists, for teachers, for um, priests, for sisters. And as um, uh, Sister was saying, she studied there and did a master's and did a great piece of work on St. Joseph, which was a great part of her work that she's bringing into her ministry. So it'll be a, 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 I promise you, if you start studying theology of body, it will change your life. And I suspect it's already changed some of your lives already. Has anyone already said that this teaching has changed their life? Yeah, beautiful, beautiful and many more lives to be changed. I think I'd better just finish so you can get something to eat. That was Anna Crone with Theology of the Body, looking at our experiences. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.